listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thank you for tuning in to On the NBA Beat. I'm Lauren Lee Chen, here with Aaron Fishman. We actually had two separate interviews scheduled for you today, but both of them had to back out for different reasons. Sometimes that happens, so I'll just be talking with Aaron today. I want to first start talking about this Raptors Cavaliers series. Coming into the postseason, there were a lot of questions about whether this was the most vulnerable Cavaliers team we've seen in a while. They had a really poor defense closing out the season. People were not sure if they could correct by the time the playoffs came around, but it seems like they're doing well so far, right? Yeah, everyone's talking about, are they going to flip the switch? And I mean, I think they did. It's it's kind of an annoying cliche. But if you look at their performance in the first round, they swept the Pacers, but they were barely winning those games. And in a lot of them, they had to mount gigantic comebacks to outlast a team that, frankly, wasn't very good in the Pacers. But this Raptors team, I think, is a lot better than the Pacers one. And not only are the Cavaliers winning in dominant fashion, but they're actually playing pretty solid defense which I didn't think we'd see from this unit. Yeah, the Cavaliers are throwing a lot of things that the Raptors don't seem like they're that well-equipped to handle. And to be honest, it even still seems like the Cavaliers might not be trying that hard all the time. People were a little bit surprised at the beginning of Game 1 in the Raptors-Cavaliers series. Just three minutes into the game, it seemed like the Cavaliers were already taking them pretty lightly. LeBron calling for a off the glass alley oop from Kyrie Irving on the on a fast break. So the Raptors have a lot to deal with. That Cavaliers offense is as explosive as ever, and I don't even think the Raptors have been playing that bad, which is makes it even more scary. Yeah, I think it was Brent Barry who was the color commentator on the game. If I'm not mistaken, I might be. <laughs> he, he was talking about how the Bucks play um, inside out and really did score a lot of their points from um, inside the key. And then when they did score from the perimeter, a lot of the action originated down low. The Cavaliers, though, I mean, um, LeBron James just creates so many shots for his teammates. Also, Kyrie Irving, so far through the first two games, is averaging double-digit assists also per game. But they are just raining down the threes. They easily lead the league right now in threes per game in the postseason and the Raptors just haven't shown any resistance at all really if you look um, at that Cavaliers roster Kyrie Irving and LeBron James can pretty much score from wherever they can cross you over dunk on you in LeBron's case but all those guys are three-point shooters Kyle Korver, Channing Frye, J.R. Smith hasn't even had to score that much because Iman Shumpert Darren Williams, even all these guys are just hitting their threes. And if you're the Raptors, that's a scary proposition. Yeah, more on that point 
in game two, which the Cavaliers won by 22 points, the Toronto Raptors actually had more field goals made than the Cavaliers, but the Cavs had a 18 to 5 advantage in three pointers made. So that was a huge difference, a difference of about 40 points there. Yeah, I was going to say just 13 three pointers made, but 39 point advantage in three pointers. That's huge. And also, the Cavaliers shot nearly 55% from the field. So the Raptors offense shot nearly 47%, not bad at all. But uh, the Cavaliers got way more free throw attempts and 18 of 33 from the three-point line. I mean, that's probably not sustainable, but it doesn't matter. They're still, they're clearly outscoring the Raptors from three every game. And as it is, I don't really see that trend not continuing. Going into game two, Dwayne Casey decided to give the Cavaliers a different look by substituting Norm Powell and Patrick Patterson into the starting lineup. Just trying to give his team some extra spark, I think, taking out Jonas Valanciunas and Damari Carroll there. Do you think there's anything, any look that the Raptors can give the Cavaliers that'll slow them down? Not if LeBron James continues playing like he has. He's just on another level. He's hitting a crazy percent of his threes. He's just hyper-efficient, scoring close to the basket. He had 21 free-throw attempts in the last game. Made 4 of 6 three-point attempts. 10 for 14 overall from the field. He's also not turning the ball over that much, considering how high his usage rate is. So not really, to be honest, I know that it sounds dire and pessimistic, but this series looks all but over. And uh, usually I wouldn't say that only two games in, but I don't think the Raptors have the confidence. I don't think more importantly, they have the personnel to do it. What do you think? I think they might bring Jonas back into the starting lineup next game. If I were to guess, he played well off the bench, granted against maybe the Cavs second squad, but he put up 23 points in 20 minutes. He looked more effective. Seems like he got his groove back. He was really struggling in game one and also in the Bucks series. So that's something to look out for. A big problem for the Raptors might be that Kyle Lowry is questionable for game three. He tweaked an ankle injury during game two and had to leave the game because of it. So if the Raptors don't have Lowry playing at 100%, then yeah. I'd I agree. really don't believe in their chances at all. And I already don't necessarily think they have a very good chance to uh, even take a game, I think. It's going to be tough. I, I mean, I think they could take a game, especially because sometimes these Cavaliers just kind of lose focus, even when you think that they've renewed it. But one really big concern is DeMar DeRozan. We saw this in the first series, and he's a pretty consistent guy for the most part but every once in a while he has these games that he's just dreadful so in game three of the Bucks series which the Raptors ended up losing and falling behind in the series two games to one he didn't make a single field goal he went 0 for 8 from the field scored eight points this is a guy who's averaging upwards of 27 points per game I believe in the top five in scoring in the NBA, if I'm not mistaken. And then in game two, he goes out and hits only two field goals all game. He had one point at halftime from a technical free throw. 
He finished with five points. That's your star player, one of your two best players on the team, in over 30 minutes per game. He averages, like I said, 27.3 per game, and he scored five. The biggest issue is that his game is predicated on getting close to 10 free throw attempts per game. He only had three attempts. What they're doing defensively is brilliant. With They're calling this a free safety approach. DeRozan also referred to it as that in a post-game quote. They have LeBron James kind of roaming in the back as a free safety. So he'll double if needed or he'll help off a pass. So really DeRozan is getting double teamed close to the basket. He's a guy who likes to get to his spots where he feels most comfortable and just either go to the basket or just attempt those mid-range shots that he's so proficient with. And he's just all confused and uncomfortable. It's it's not a good look for him. He's the type of guy that could come out in Game 3 and, and score 25 without a problem. He's just that good, even if the Cavaliers continue with the same approach. So, I mean, I think he'll adjust, but he scored 19 in the first game, and it wasn't nearly enough for him. And it's a trend. The last thing I'll say is it's a trend that we've seen in the playoffs the games sometimes they the referees let more stuff go and in the eastern conference finals last year DeRozan averaged five and a half free throw attempts per game after getting more than eight per game during the regular season so he can't count on getting as many trips to the charity stripe it's just it's not going to happen he's going to have to be more creative and he's going to have to have a lot more help from his supporting cast game two only three free throw attempts for DeRozan he really needs to get those. The way he plays his style, he can't get discouraged if he's not getting that call. He needs to stay aggressive and attacking the rim. Or else, like I think his style of staying in the mid-range and not really being able to extend to the three-point line, if he's not getting fouled a lot, it could get pretty inefficient and still use up a lot of possessions for Toronto. Also, when the Cavaliers are hitting all these threes, there's a tendency to try to match them shot for shot. And when you have Patrick Patterson, who can't really hit anything at this point, and they're not really able to rely on Damari Carroll for three-point shooting at this point, it seems like that much, when defensively he's a liability. I mean, he's been regarded as a pretty good defensive player, but this Cavaliers team is just too fast. He hasn't looked good on either end, really, and he's not getting a ton of playing time. I just think that there's some serious issues, and you don't want DeRozan then to start taking a ton of threes. He's not traditionally a good three-point shooter. He can shoot them effectively every once in a while, but that's not his game, and you don't want him doing that. The last thing before we move on to the next stage of our discussion, these Raptors have had an unfortunate playoff history in recent years where they seem to always lose game one. I think, what are they, 1-11 in, in game ones or something like that? 1-12, I think. Yeah. So uh, they did it again in the first round. They managed to outlast the Bucks. They did it again in this series, less surprising. But there was some argument, I think convincing to a certain extent, that their Eastern Conference Finals berth kind of shook off the nerves and arguably made them more playoff competent, playoff savvy, if you can call it that. 
and that given how vulnerable we thought the Cavaliers were coming into the season with their defensive struggles in the second half of the year, that maybe this is finally the version of the Raptors to take on the Cavaliers, really challenge them, maybe even eliminate them. Sadly, I don't think that's the case. It's more though that the Cavaliers have just turned it on and they're just blitzing these Raptors than the Raptors just shrinking under the limelight. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I I just think that the Cavaliers are a much better team. I do think probably the Raptors might be a little bit better than last season and the Cavaliers might be a little bit worse. But last season, the Eastern Conference Finals went to six games, but that really undersells how lopsided that series was. If you look at the total points scored in the series, even though it went to six games, I think the Cavaliers scored over 100 points more than the Raptors in that series. The four Cavaliers wins were all blowouts of 30 plus points almost. The past playoff woes for the Raptors, that's a really interesting thing to look at. It seems like even some of the players and people around that franchise have taken it almost as a given that they're going to lose game ones. I know there was reporting from the locker room after they lost game one to the Bucks, where PJ Tucker seemed to be the only person in the locker room not just accepting the loss as <laughs> the way things are done in Toronto, just being like, oh yeah, like we're the Raptors, we don't win game ones, but we'll try to come back in the series anyways. Yeah, and I think that's a fair thing to bring up. And we had an excellent Raptors guest lined up, whom you alluded to earlier, and he got sick, and he just couldn't come onto the show. We definitely would have asked him about that. But I want to move on to the other series in the Eastern Conference semifinals. So it's 2 nothing. the Celtics lead, and I should point out that by the time you listen to this, that will no longer be the case. There will have been three games played in that series, but for it being a 2-0 Boston lead, it's been very competitive, and we've seen the same story in each of the first two games, where the Washington Wizards on the road in Boston jump out to a commanding lead after the first quarter, where they're holding Boston and Isaiah Thomas for the most part pretty much in check, and they're also scoring a lot, and then Boston just gradually adjusts, and the king in the fourth and company they just are really good at the end of games and Washington has no answer for them this guy Isaiah Thomas I want you to talk about him 53 points with all that he's going through just a Herculean effort by the guy it's amazing to watch honestly we've seen his fourth quarter heroics all season long but I think now especially they're even more impressive Watching that game too, for someone with Isaiah Thomas's stature, it looks like every time he goes in and takes a fadeaway jumper or goes in and tries to get fouled on a drive or finish at the rim, it seems like every single one of his shots should be blocked, but he can contort his body, he can use space and affect the timing of his shots such that it throws off your defensive timing and you're not able to block it or you have to foul him. There was that one shot at the end of the game where he goes in, gets the foul from Morris, and then leans back so far and still hits the jumper. And I think that just put an exclamation point on his performance. And 
it was just so deflating for the Wizards and the Celtics that's had the game in the bag for by that point. Yeah, just two things about that. It was crazy. Not only that, but he had to reload. The ball was slipping out of his hand. So he heard the whistle. There was contact with Markeith Morris. And then he had to, again, grab the ball while he was in the air. And he was able to do all of that and not miss a beat and hit the shot. And then the look on his face... He was trying to make eye contact with Markeith Morris to kind of tell him, like, yeah, you can't really guard me. And Markeith Morris would not look back. He just wouldn't. And it was funny to see on TV. The thing also, when you're talking about just how adept he is for a guy who I think is probably like 5'9 at the most, probably a little less than 5'9. But for him to be able to score at the basket and have such confidence and just such creativity there was one play near the end where he kept pump faking and John Wall wasn't falling for it and then he just rejected it basically into the third row I'm exaggerating but that's the type of thing you expect to see more just if you don't know much about Isaiah Thomas and you just see see how he looks and just think about all the trees in the NBA John Wall's a giant compared to Isaiah Thomas and he's a point guard in the NBA So that just makes it even more impressive. And um, I alluded to all the things that he's been dealing with. His sister, China, passed away in that horrific car accident. And I think it might have been a little bit more than a week ago. And, And then also, he underwent hours and hours of oral surgery to repair that tooth that came out. I'm uncomfortable with the narrative that that people are making into a sports narrative and talking so much about his personal family business. I guess the thing that I don't really like the most is I think you can make a case that it's heroic that he's playing and he's doing so well in light of, of the close family death, but I think he'd be just as much of a hero if he decided not to play and spent time with his family. Now, I'm not saying that he made the wrong decision because only he can make that decision. I can definitely see him taking a lot of flack for that. Maybe not in the national spotlight, but among Boston fans saying maybe that when they needed him most that he abdicated his duties or something like that. That was like a king pun intended, by the way. I think that... Brad Stevens talked about this, Avery Bradley and and some of his closest friends on the team did. Really, there's not one single right thing to do. Everyone has their own grieving process. So I think you can astutely point out that he's going through so much and it's amazing that he has been able to perform at such a high level. But I don't like when people on the air or just regular people on social media make his sister's death is central to the narrative. He's just an amazing player who can perform amazingly at the highest stage. To your point, I think everyone goes through their own grieving process their own way. I agree that I don't like, especially in studio or from the commentators, suggesting that there are things that he should do or how he should be processing it. Because as you said, everyone deals with their grief their own way. We would not have been judging him if he chose to take any games off or if he didn't take a game off and then perform poorly. I agree that the narrative of he's like a hero overcoming everything, playing for his sister, I I think 
that's a little bit uncomfortable and using a tragedy f- for story reasons. Yeah, definitely. For me, I guess if I could put it into one sentence, I fear that um, that mindset of, of commentators reduces an important, heavy life and death issue into a sports narrative. And as huge of a sports and basketball fan as I am, I acknowledge readily that sports is nowhere near as important as losing a loved one or the birth of, of a kid, any, anything like that. It's just a game. And um, it's a game that we all love, but it's just that. The thing that Barkley said, I don't think he meant to do it. It came off as so insensitive and ridiculous that when the cameras that are all over him naturally show Isaiah Thomas crying before the game, he says it makes him uncomfortable. Who cares how Charles Barkley feels if he's uncomfortable? Isaiah Thomas lost the loved one. And also, even if he is crying and he looks like it might be hard to focus, Charles Barkley doesn't know how Isaiah Thomas operates and if he's able to compartmentalize once he gets onto the basketball court. He's a real human being, so I don't think there's ever a time where he completely forgets about it, but it does seem like when he's on the court, like for the most part, he's in the moment, and he's as competitive as anyone. I think he just wants to win. Regarding the Barkley thing, I I know his comments got blown up. I really want to give him the benefit of the doubt, and... His comments were that the shot of Isaiah Thomas crying makes him uncomfortable. I hope he means that maybe he's uncomfortable with the fact that people aren't giving him his needed personal space or like that the camera is like pulling so close to him in a time where he probably wants to be alone and or with his best friends and Avery Bradley and the rest of the team and deal with his grief outside of the public eye. Hopefully that's what Barkley is saying and not trying to, uh, perpetuate this idea of masculinity men shouldn't cry or shouldn't deal with grief or anything i think even though it sounded like it at first i don't think barkley was doing that with the um crying as weakness and men shouldn't cry i don't think he meant to do that but i also i don't think that he was saying that he should be given a space and that the cameras shouldn't be all over i guess basically just we can't really know what charles barkley meant without talking to him, but he should be better. It was so inartful how he said that. I know he's been known to do that at times, but he's been on the air for so long that you'd think that he would think a little bit longer before he spoke and, and just that he would say it more clearly than that. Yeah, I mean, he shouldn't be attacked without really knowing his, his true intent, but he should be more careful about stuff like that. The Rockets first series is an interesting one. On the road in San Antonio, the Rockets just came out and showed dominance. They just showed how good they can be stealing that first game in San Antonio. And then in game two, the Spurs evened up the series, but not without a gigantic loss to Tony Parker, who ruptured his quadriceps tendon. And now he's going to be out for the playoffs. Just a terrible loss, Lauren. Yeah, I really hope that's not how Tony Parker's career ends, too, because he, he's definitely getting up there in years. It seemed to be a potential outcome, especially if he, depending on how that quadriceps tends and heals, that it could be a career ending injury. So 
you hate to see yeah. such a storied career, probably Hall of Fame worthy, go out like that. Tony Parker turns 35 in less than two weeks from recording time. So he is not that old, but his 35 is more like 38, 39 for a lot of guys just because of all those years of international competition and how deep the Spurs perennially get into the postseason. And so it's a shame. That seems like a really bad injury judging from the little I know about medical stuff, but it doesn't look good. And he doesn't seem to have so much left. His career is clearly winding down. I think, yeah, I think uh, we can all agree that you want to see him get back out there, show what he can do. This would not be a very good final memory of a guy who's had such a storied career. I just want to ask you a little bit before we close out, though, how you think the Rockets look. I thought they'd win the series going in. I just thought that they're too too young, quick, and athletic for the Spurs as well coached as they are. I thought it would be a long series, but that the Rockets would outlast the Spurs. How are you feeling about it now? I'm curious both with the Parker injury, but even without it, how you thought things were shaking out. Coming into the series, I was a little bit apprehensive. I think I would have picked the Spurs in seven. I know a lot of analysts and people online were saying Houston in six, which I, these two teams were so well matched in the regular season. The Spurs won that matchup three, one, but actually in two of those Spurs wins, the Rockets were in really in control of that, those games until the last couple minutes when the Spurs were able to lock them down and erase a double-digit lead in no time. One of them was their first game in December. The Rockets played the Spurs, and I think it was the largest ever lead erased in the last four minutes. I think the Rockets were up by about 15. The second game I'm referring to was that national TV game that people pointed to as part of Kawhi's MVP case where he just locked down James Harden in the last three minutes and also put on an offensive show. Game one and game two, I think, were both a little bit of aberrations. I don't think the Rockets are going to execute quite as well as game one on either end of the floor that was able to lead to that blowout in game one. In game two, a lot of it was not being able to um, adjust to the adjustments, I guess, that the Spurs made. Greg Popovich realized that he probably can't play David Lee nearly as much as he did in game one. He he was just getting feasted upon by the Rockets offense every time he was involved in a play. The other adjustment he made was putting Kawhi on James Harden on defense from the start of the game. As we've talked about before on the show a lot, James Harden is so good at finding the angles for the team and making that offense completely happen. But when you have Kawhi on you, you can try to look for the best option all the time, but like sometimes just none of them are there. So it really limited what he was able to do, James Harden. And as such, the Rockets offense really never could get going. I guess I'd, I have two questions for you. So first, how concerned are you about that three for 17 performance from Harden with Kawhi Leonard on him? Or are you more confident that 
Harden and the Rockets can adjust. And related to that, what will be the likely impact of this Tony Parker injury on the rest of the series? I'll address your second question first, I guess. The Tony Parker injury is going to be pretty big. Um, As good as Kawhi is, I don't think he's an initiator of their offense. He's so effective in his spots, but the Spurs still play a very team-oriented ball game that is started from their point guard. Now, Patty Mills played really well in Game 2 on both ends of the floor. So the drop-off isn't necessarily that steep, but I do think they lose something. Maybe the drop-off you have to pay more attention to is not necessarily going from Parker to Mills, who play actually almost similar amount of minutes. Obviously, Parker having more responsibility, but Mills keeps his own. But the bigger drop-off you want to look at is going from Mills to their their third-string point guard, either DeJounte Murray or if they want to run some point guardless sets or lineups out there, having Kawhi being the initiator or bringing Manu in as point guard or Kyle Anderson, I think you're going to have a lot of drop-off in efficiency there. Regarding Harden being shut down in Game 2 by Kawhi, I am worried a little bit about that. But at the same time, the Rockets offense actually has been pretty inconsistent at times. James Harden got shut down a few of the games during the series against the Thunder, and they were still able to pull out that series in five games. So without even shooting very well from three-pointers, a lot of people point out that, you know, if this Rockets team gets hot from three, they can beat anyone. And it definitely looked like the case in game one, but Actually, I'm more impressed by the games where they don't shoot well from three, which has happened time and time again. They'll just throw up a stinker or something, go under 20%, and somehow still get the win. Now, that's going to be really hard to do against a team as good as the San Antonio Spurs, but I do think they have it in them. Historically, or at least this season, I think a lot of the Rockets do shoot worse at home. It's something to do with the sight lines at the Toyota Center. Brian Anderson, especially, if you look at his home road splits, he shoots much better from three-pointer out on the road. So that's something to keep in mind. I'm not necessarily, bringing it back to your original question, I'm not necessarily worried about James Harden's shooting by itself, that three for 17 performance, but he needs to be able to get the offense initiated through his passing if that's not there. And Kawhi, with his long arms, just cuts off so many of those lanes. So that's definitely something I'll be worried about and looking for in games three and beyond. Yeah, that's a fair point. James Harden did, however, have 10 assists in game two, but they only scored 96 points, which they can't do. They're such a prolific offense. They're going to need to score more than that to win most of these games, most likely. But I just hope that we see a competitive series, even in light of the Parker injury, and that whichever team emerges from this semifinal provides at least some resistance to these Golden State Warriors. I know they're the heavy favorite, and for good reason, but no one wants to see them just sleepwalk into a championship, I think. And I'm not saying that'll happen, and obviously the Cavaliers are getting better, but 
just for entertainment perspective, that'd be nice to see one of these teams put in a good effort in a conference final, I think. That's going to do it for us. If there's nothing else, and I don't think there is, then we'll leave it there and we'll be back next week for at least an interview with a team expert, maybe multiple ones, but we really appreciate you tuning in, hearing our takes, and if this was your first time listening, thanks for tuning in as well.